Chris here. Welcome back to Small Bean Services Program, Director Peace Theater. Uh, here's two men to talk about a film. I need to sit down. I'm drunk. Well, uh, welcome everyone to the second episode of Director Peace Theater, where your favorite former crack directors get together and talk about your favorite movies and talk about why they're so well made or not. I am one of your hosts, Adam Ganser. With me is my co-host. I'm Abe. I'm Abe. <laughs> I'm Abe Epperson. I'm, I'm, I'm a co-host. <laughs> I never tire of your cheerfulness when yeah. you introduce yourself. <laughs> Although it's funny you say your favorite. Not that that's even true. Sure. Uh, favorite uh, X-Cracked directors. But we were, for a long <laughs> that's time... That's a small pool, by the way. That's a pretty small pool. for a pool. long time, the only. <laughs> so. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. That's a pretty small pool. It didn't feel like it was a really risky take to call us that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We hedge our bets in our confidence. Yes. Yeah. Let's not inflate our egos too much because there's no other way it can be. Yes. I limit the ways that love can come to me, so I'll be sure Mm, to get it. mm, Very humbling. Very humbling. Yeah. Very much so. So what are we doing today? And what's the point of this? Like, why did you call me? (laughs) With the recorder on. On and the mic yeah. set and everything. What's I don't. This? I thought I'd just hang out. Uh, no, oh, but for, for oh great. <laughs> but for real, uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about one of my favorite movies, and I think one of yours also, Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. Mm. Uh, mm. I know that you. How many times did you say you've seen Ocean's Eleven? I've seen Ocean's Eleven a lot, uh, more than I'd like to admit on a microphone. Uh, fair enough. I because think that, go ahead. It's, it's just delightful to watch, uh, even though it's like stupid. It's like one of those stupid "I love it" movies. It really is stupid. I agree with you on that take. And yet, like Shawshank Redemption, if it's on, you're watching twenty, thirty minutes of it, right? Like if it's on TV or whatever, yeah. you're watching it, right? Yeah. I don't know <laughs> or, if I agree with Shawshank as the next example you give as a stupid it's fun movie but no 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 I, I, <laughs> don't you think it's fun when he walks through that sewer and yeah 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 uh yeah yeah when he releases all that dirt for years from his pants no mm-hmm. no i i'm what i mean by that is that i think it's one of the one of the kinds of movies that like everybody loves enough that if it's on you'll watch it for a little while like you like you're instinctively like oh yeah i love that movie i want to catch a little bit of it yeah yeah you know? cuz i feel like it's never it's always kind of in medias res, uh, to use the term. Like it's always, uh, it feels like it's always going on. One thing leads to another. It's very nebulous. It's form. So it's like I can chime in at any time, and I don't feel like I'm missing anything because I'm always occupied. It's always telling me a new thing. That's, I like that about uh, that movie. You have perfectly described exactly what I want to say about Ocean's Eleven. So okay. Okay, so here's my here's my theory on this movie. Ocean's Eleven is one of the first times we've ever seen in movies when a heist movie became less about the tension of the heist and more about just expositing the fun of the plan. This is a right. movie that made exposition yeah. the point and also exposition fun, and that's all it did, which is right. that yeah, never yeah. happens in movies. Like, legit no, never actually, happens. From a screenwriting standpoint, 
a bad idea. <laughs> right, exactly. And like I think that because it was so successful and we've copied it so many times and there's been so many sequels, we kind of forget that it has all the ingredients of a bad movie. Uh-huh. Like liter- literally all the ingredients. So for instance, it has so many uh it has so many stars in it that we have to give each of them an appropriate amount of screen time and a little plot in order for us to care. Right? Which is usually a recipe already for a movie not to work. Right, it's a remake right. of yeah. a movie that was also already successful with famous people. Uh-huh. That's usually a problem, and it was a payday for a director who had already won a bunch of awards. Yeah, so he it won was like Traffic before this, right? Like the year before, he just won a Best Director Oscar, uh-huh. and he was up for Traffic and Aaron Brockovich the same year, and won for Traffic. And it's like exactly the kind of project that normally a director, by the way, this is Steven Soderbergh, would mm-hmm. take off. Right, it has so there's every reason why it should be bad. Like, and that's not even talking about the plot of it. The plot of it is they're gonna rob three casinos uh, in Las Vegas, and they're gonna do it in a way where you don't understand exactly how the heist works. And that's like the premise of it, or how casinos work. Because <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. why do they have one vault for three casinos? I don't know. Completely baffling. Why would that ever exist? And so does where that mean would they have to go outside the casino to bring it to another vault? That feels unsafe to me. That's God. It's like so easy to poke holes in the premise right. of this movie, right. and, and, as you should. Why is there one vault? Is a wonderful question. And like, uh-huh. if you're those other hotels, like let's say you're the the win. You know, or what was the one that you and I stayed at? Was it the Mirage? It I don't was think the, the uh, well, we stayed at the Mirage. We right. did go into the Wynn, and we felt yes. immediately like we didn't deserve oh, to be boy, there. Boy, we we don't deserve to be here. <laughs> I have dirt on my face. I do not yeah. deserve to be in this hotel. <laughs> I have not a single uh, nankerchief. <laughs> I left I all my a, pocket squares back. I in the, do not have a pocket square. Right. I, it, it's it's definitely too fancy. So, but. But for real, though, if you're building a hotel and you know that that vault exists, why aren't you like, hey, can we get in on that? We'll like split the cost with you. You know what I mean? So why is it just three of the seven or eight hotels on the strip? I don't get that. Uh, I mean, they explain it. I mean, they say like they're his casinos, Benedict. So does that mean he built this thing? Like, and I'm, I'm not trying to ruin this whole thing before I get into the theory, but just like brief observation. Does that mean he built this vault underground after he purchased three of the biggest casinos in the world? Yes. That's ins- <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with yes. I, it has to mean that, right? That's insane. Right. I don't know. But no, but so this is a really good example of like, this is a movie that if you stop and think about it for one second, it falls apart. Uh-huh. And yet it's a, it's one of the most successfully entertaining movies. That's a too convoluted to be a tense movie. Any of us have ever seen. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's uh, to repeat my theory again. It's one of the only times that I've ever seen in a movie where the exposition of it was the point. And that is stunning. You know, it's a stunning yeah. thing. No, okay. it's a uh, it's a delight. I still I like I said, I, I've watched it many times. Well, that's I mean, that's the proof, right? Like nobody here is yeah, going to say, like, exactly. oh, it it's like one of the best movies ever made. But like it's one of the best heist movies ever made. Right. It has it's to up be. There. It's yeah, up it there. Has it's to got be. all the component parts you want from a heist movie. And I would well and that would argue it's actually sort of like an anti-heist movie because the heist part of it, even though that's what we're watching, is never tense. 
every other no. heist movie you can think of, it's always like, oh my God, are they going to get away with this? And that's not what happens in Ocean's Eleven. What happens in Ocean's Eleven is how are they going to get away with this? This will be yeah, fun it's like, to yeah, see. The music's always like, or it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's always like, all right, we're having fun. Right. The music never suggests that any of this is going to be a problem. Mm-mm. Like at any point in time. So like because they took the heist out of it, what they did instead is like, hey, we're going to create the feeling of just hang back and watch this. It's just fun. That's all it is. Right. And everything about it is a wink to the camera. And we all kind of agreed to that. And now that's mm-hmm. the formula for heist movies. Okay. So that's really interesting, right? So the question is, how did they get us to stop asking like the heist movie questions as an audience member, right? I'll take it from here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> unholy spells, incantations, probably involving ghouls, right? Yeah, because they're sorcery cause film, is always at the back. Sorcerers. of... Yeah, sorcery is always at the back of any mystifying film question. Definitely. Yeah, okay. Good. Yeah, we're on the same page. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Explain to me how does Ocean's Eleven. May turn you into a little dummy who just enjoys the movie. Okay, so it, it, there's a combination of screenwriting tricks and filmmaking tricks that the movie uses to kind of force us to no longer think about the plot and instead to, to think about how much fun we're having with the characters and kind of release our grip on wanting there to be tension. Okay, so the first thing is, and it's probably the most important, is that Soderbergh is a master of motion. And by that, I mean he can use literally any camera trick in the book to make a scene feel like it's progressing. And he does this in like this very subconscious way where because the thing is always in motion, we feel like, oh, we're making progress. It's going somewhere. So we don't ask the question like, should this be happening? Does this make any sense? We don't ask mm-hmm. those questions because camera forces us to feel like we're constantly on the go. The movie is constantly unfolding. Okay, so, so he does it by camera. That's one of the tactics, elements. yeah. And and just to be like a little technical about it, he uses every single film trick that I have seen that's not lighting related, but that's motion related. So like he uses handheld camera, he uses steady cam, he uses dollies, he uses zooms, he uses helicopter shots, strobing he's security effects. Security camera footage, right? Yeah, he strobes. Yeah. He does focus blurs. Uh, he like he, it's almost as complicated as a Spike Lee movie. Right, and Spike Lee is sort of infamous for using every single camera trick you can imagine. Uh-huh. Uh, Soderbergh is doing exactly that, and yet none of the movements ever feel out of place. And some of them are really crazy. Like for instance, we meet Matt Damon's character Linus. Right, it's about the twenty-sixth minute of the movie, and the first time we see him, where he's on a subway, right, and for no reason the camera is strobing. And by that I mean like we have this strange blurring. Uh, effect between frames where like reality is sort of changed and heightened and it's the only scene in the movie where we have that effect so you don't mean strobing as in like the a strobe lighting effect you mean strobing as in uh slow shutter speed correct that's yes, like thank the you for opposite of that. gladiator where you, yes when in gladiator ridley scott russell crowe would thrust his sword into the sand and you'd see these granular uh, sand molecules and it would all, you know, like we've used it. That's fast shutter speed because it keeps it, the apertures opening and closing so quickly that you get a super clear picture. Yes. Now, if you were to slow down the shutter speed that covers up the film gate, 
it allows for a blur in between like in the negative space, so to speak. And when the frame is off, it has to get the same amount of light by opening up slowly. So more light is getting in. So all the motion is blurred together and you get that strobe effect. And you know, I'm pretty sure he's doing it in camera. Although there's a moment later on where George Clooney rips off Matt Damon's, like he does a lift from Matt Damon's pocket that the effect resumes that might've been done in post. But I'm pretty sure the first scene is exactly what you're describing, right? The one with Linus, where he's robbing that guy from he's his... He's, like, bumping against, yeah. you know, other yeah. subway or, yeah. Now, there's, like, there, there are obvious reasons why you would use this effect for specifically that kind of theft. Like, it looks really fake to watch a person do a lift in real time when he robs a guy from his suit jacket, like his front mm-hmm. pocket. Whereas with the strobing effect, the motion is so blurred that it feels like it could have happened in a way that felt secret and you don't think about it. Right. So it has that advantage. I've seen the effect done like um, uh, Guy Ritchie has used it uh, mm-hmm. in Snatch mm-hmm. and Wong Kar Wai in Chungking Express yes. to give the feeling that you're like drunk or a night is a blur. But this is the first time I've seen it just to introduce a character to be like. A lot of, yes, exactly. It's a, it's a character introduction tactic, which is really weird because like it's the only character introduction that has this, and it makes you feel like the guy is sort of perennially nervous, like there's a sort of nervous, mm. uncertain quality to him, yeah. um, which later on becomes very important because basically Matt Damon is the only person who ever doubts the plan. Like He's the only person who experiences the, oh, is this actually going to work feeling? No one else has that feeling. He's literally the only one that goes through a journey on the heist at all. So Soderbergh has to introduce his anxiety in a way that doesn't make him feel less cool, but that does kind of give us some sort of inner workings. But more important than that, it, it masks the fakeness of that lift, right? And it's the kind of tactic that other than the two examples you used, you only saw them used in a sort of shitty way in like a 90s movie or something or like an 80s mm-hmm. movie when they, they ran out of cool camera things to do. It's not, a, it's not typically used in really cool movies, right? Would you mm-hmm. agree to that? I think... Chunking Express is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. That's the one exception. You, you put mamas and papas over, and all oh, the leaves are brown. You know, it's like fucking... <laughs> that, to use yeah. a, a word yeah, yeah. from last episode, that slaps. Oh, my... I knew you were going to do it. I knew you were going to bring that back. I had to do it. I like that. Uh, no, no, I like your... I like... I, the thing that I didn't think about is the training us... Uh, like Linus is nervous and tense, like this feeling of an easy and the idea of putting it on a subway where people are jerking to and fro. Yes. Like nothing is stable. Everything's off center and uh, can be pushed over at any time. That's correct. Okay. So just a couple more examples of motion here. So there's an amazing zoom in on some balloons in the back of, (laughs) in the back of uh, Brad Pitt's car, which then of course Mm -hmm. we zoom out of the balloons and it's Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn's characters like masking a camera with the balloons and getting into one of their 50 fights in the movie, all of which are very funny, Mm -hmm. but like a zoom in on balloons, is uh so silly uh that like you kind of it it gives you the like a literal a visceral smile you're like no how like why would we ever do zoom in on balloons well that's the kind of movie it is right like it's not serious and i think it's one of those motion tricks where like a it's a really cool way to get in and out of a scene right we zoom in lose our like it blurs out and then we blur back in as we zoom out of the same balloons in a different place but b 
it right. sort of gives us a sort of whimsical like ah this movie ah this is fun right and it's like such an obvious example of that that it kind of takes our so like, you're saying not in not necessarily like a rack focus inside the scene but intra scene meaning scene a transition to scene transitioning yes. yeah i get that feeling or i think what you're saying is it that because it because it goes out of focus and it can hide the cut yes because it just becomes a wash of colors Correct. and then when you rack back out uh and it's a, d- a new place you get the feeling that whoever is running like the show, which is Soderbergh, but like, yeah, you know the the narrator. When you're just watching the movie, it, you're in good hands. They have, yes. they're meticulously designing every yes. scene, so you're just along for the ride. Correct. Much in the same way that when you're like, oh, when I went, uh, I went to Disneyland, and there was that. I looked to the left, and there was that shit, and then I looked to the right, there was that shit. I just felt like there's constantly shit happening, and wherever I looked. I was in good hands. Right. And and like just to reinforce the obvious thing about this movie, this is 11 men trying to rob hundreds of millions of dollars from a casino and we're like watching balloons wackily used to like conceal cameras and stuff as though, oh, yeah. oh for sure this is going to work. Like this is the entirety of the plan for that part of it is balloons. Hey, sometimes a a plan involves balloons, man. I, I- <laughs> I just have balloons on retainer yeah. just in case sure. I need them to hatch my sure. plans. I mean, your your I, house is basically like a clown college. It's, yeah, it's beautiful yeah, in there. because you never know when a balloon can really improve a podcast. <laughs> I also never know when that could happen. Uh, yeah. We don't, yeah. but it will. So at you're, one point. maybe I should dial my skepticism back a little bit, but I, it, it's such a, it's such a wacky thing. And I, I just feel like it's, uh, it deserves mentioning in this motion category. Okay. A couple more examples. One, yeah. uh, so Matt Damon learns in like, you know, about 30 minutes into the movie, about 30, maybe 40 minutes into the movie, he learns his job is to be like the shadow guy who learns everything about people, mm-hmm. right? The tale, uh, and that's how we learned about, you know, Benedict and how we learned about uh, Danny. Yeah, Danny's uh, thing with Tess and everything else. But he's lear- he learns it while they are, like, unloading, like, metal beams from a conveyor belt. Like, they're just mm-hmm. whipping it and whipping them at him. And he's like, uh, so wait a minute, how am I going to do this? And, like, he has to catch and manage these metal beams while he's learning this fact, which is a really good sort of, like, small microcosm of this movie. Like, they're dumping facts on us while we're trying to manage the actual emotional beats of the scene. And he doesn't have time to slow down and ask any questions about how to tell these people. He just has to keep unloading it just like this conveyor belt because of the motion of it. And once we, and the camera doesn't even linger on it long enough for us to be like, yeah, how is he going to do that? Instead, it whips over to Brad Pitt who like winks and smiles and then whips another metal beam at us. And it's just such a good example of motion keeping us from asking questions or lingering on problems too long. Like, it's yeah, just like, no, nah, man. urgency to it. Yeah. Every, every, this whole movie is those metal beams whipping down this conveyor belt. Yeah. It's just like, why am I doing this? Why am, why are we doing this? I don't know. I, I because, uh, we need to get, we need to get to the next scene, baby. Right. Exactly. This movie does not let you have enough time to have a question, which is like mm-hmm. literally exactly the experience of the character of Linus, but also our experience as an audience. And that's like such a great little microcosm of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so like the last thing I want to mention is this concept called the camera drop off, right? And it's this is used in movies a lot, but it's used 
really well in this movie. And that is, so we're watching, you know, we've watched a scene where some secret stuff has happened, right? And then we follow the person out of the scene, which is a thing that we're used to watching happen, right? A scene transition. And then the camera gets dropped off with another person who overheard the entire thing. Like right? you mean it literally like switches over to, yes. like, oh, the point of view of yes. the camera is now distracted yes. to another character. Correctly. Okay, yes, exactly. It's it's how we figure out how Matt Damon learns everything that he learns, although not mm-hmm. just him. It's done with a lot of characters, but he is the most obvious. And there are times where the place where we land on Matt Damon, he couldn't have heard any of the things that happened at all. Like right. he, he would never have been able to hear all of that, but because right. the camera has gone in such a dramatic, distinctive motion, we just, imp- we just like do the mental work of, oh, we heard it. Oh, we heard oh. the whole thing. It's yeah. a really great camera trick for he heard the entire thing, even though he couldn't have. It's not possible. Doesn't matter. Doesn't it's- matter. Yeah. Camera forces us to agree. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's so much stuff like that. I just think it's really cool directing and also DPing. And the fun fact, Stoderberg was also the DP of this movie. He does that he does that a lot. Yes. Yeah. He really knows the cinematic language and this movie is him using basically every piece of it he wants to to keep us from having time to object to what he's saying. Uh, right. And that's really interesting. Okay, so another way that he does it. Um, he uses scene transitions that plant ideas and then pay them off later. So, like, the most famous one of them is uh, that we discover the air freshener for the SWAT team. Like, this is, like, right as the heist is about to begin, a couple of guys are getting into a van. And we are zooming in on the van from inside the point of view of a different car that we don't see or understand. But then we rack focus to this air freshener. And it's, like, a thing where people are, like, what is that air freshener? And then, like, it doesn't come back till the moment that the guys are loading the money into the SWAT vehicle. And you're, like, oh, that was the thing that we're supposed to learn. And even Baron, though it's not even the same air freshener or the same right. van, because the van that had it, it was the van that was destroyed by the pinch and the SWAT van is a completely different van. I, I think it actually, it, it's, it, I think it actually is inside the SWAT van. We've just never seen the inside of the SWAT van. Oh, okay. that's the trick, right? That's the, so that's happens an hour in. He's like, some, so he's like a stage magician yes. saying to look at this hand to hide the other, like some kind of, <laughs> wizard <laughs> using unholy spells I, involving ghouls probably definitely there's certainly something ghoulish going on that's for sure what uh, a ghoul definitely the pinch by the way uh can i spend a little time on the pinch the pinch is yeah hit me with the pinch the pinch, pinch me baby <laughs> i'm gonna the pinch is the most fucking ridiculous thing in this movie by a lot so just for people who don't remember it so there's a moment where Don Cheadle's character, who we're going to talk about a little bit later, comes in and he's just like, we got to get this uh, this EMP d- device in order to shut the city down for 30 seconds so you guys can get down the vault with all the lasers, right? Which is very silly. The pinch is like a gigantic, it looks like, I don't know, an hourglass with coils in it and stuff. And it's like probably weighs several thousand pounds. And like uh-huh. eight of the guys go to get it. And that's like... That's just a thing that happens in this movie from like a school. And I mean, first of all, there's like some really smart decisions by Soderbergh there. One of them is we're about to go on the heist to get the pinch. And he's like, Matt Damon, your character has to stay in the car. So instead of going with the guys on the heist, which should have been a tense moment, we stay with Matt Damon in the car while he listens to the two brothers who are driving bicker the whole time. So we miss the heist. 
it's like we have instead of the heist we have this weird joke which is a thing we're going to come back to later but it's the kind of thing every other movie would give you the pinch stealing scene oceans 11 doesn't give it to you instead it gives you some jokes and then they come out with the pinch and that's the entirety of that scene other than Matt Damon makes a right. mistake. And it gives you the time to give the plot de- or the character development of Lioness is unhappy about his place in yes. the Correct. Uh, in like his role in the heist. And, and he's also undependable. Uh, Yen, who's the grease man. Right. Right? The grease the man. He's going to do yes. all the jumps and stuff. Hurts his hand during that. Yeah. So that adds later tension for during the actual heist. He's got a, it's a payoff later. So it's like weaving all these things, which is good plant payoff stuff. But yeah, it's, it has avoiding doing the actual heist of the pinch is an interesting in a heist movie. They avoided a heist. Right. It's like, that's exactly the scene in every other movie you would definitely want to watch. But this yeah. movie understood, hey, we're not gonna get we're not gonna get bogged down with this stupid like EMP device. They're just gonna walk in and get it. And in order to justify yeah. that, we're gonna have some jokes. Just uh, like we didn't need to see a scene where they go and buy air fresheners. Right, of course. Exactly. So just to stay on the thread here, so a couple of other scene transitions that plant ideas that would need to pay off later. Um, at the beginning of the scene where Danny and Rusty decide to recruit Matt Damon and by the by that, I mean, it's the scene, you think we need one more? You think we need one more? All right, we'll get one more, right? They have like a right, bunch of right, those right, in this yeah. movie. That scene begins with a promo for the heavyweight boxing match that's going to happen later in this movie with, by the way, two very important actual boxers that they got to be in the movie, which is crazy. Um, they have just like a tiny little promo for it, which sort of plants the idea, oh, it needs to happen during the fight. You know, uh, that's right. how they got the idea to do it during the fight. Like, that's a cool tiny little thing that you don't think about but it subconsciously plants the idea right uh there's the scene where rusty confronts danny about tess where he's just like tell me it's not about tess to get to that conversation we pass through a bunch of guys putting together this mock vault right which is it's stated once in the movie hey we need to make a mock vault but when you actually see them doing it they're like putting chips and like actual details of the vault inside this mock vault and if you thought about it it's like, why the hell do you need that to practice? You don't need any of that shit to practice, right? It's like one of the only times that the actual resolution of the movie is put forward for us to see, and we just sort of pass by it on the way to the actual scene that we're going to get, which is Rusty mm-hmm. confronting Danny. But in transition, we sort of follow all these little pieces of them assembling the actual vault at a level of detail, which means there's no way this is just for practice. It's also so that they can conduct the heist and film it later. Uh, but it's planted in this sort of seemingly innocuous way where like later on you're like, Oh, they did show us that. Oh, that's so cool. Right. Like really cool planning from Steven Soderbergh there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. Like scene. Yeah. Plant and payoff in terms of something that we know that is what these guys would be thinking about. And we don't need to see that. Like, maybe they thought about it before. Maybe they thought about it after. Maybe they just realized it now. That's not as important as it's just going to be a thing that happens in the movie later. Exactly. As long as it was in the movie in a way that you kind of thought about it, but not long enough to realize anything, then mm-hmm. it sort of does its job. And, like, it's so economical. Like, Soderbergh, it's, that movie definitely seems whimsical. It's really not. It is carefully, like, every single frame is planned by Soderbergh. Right, it's right. really impressive as a directing outing. 
uh, for right. for economy more than anything yes. else. Yes. Okay. So, the the last biggest. Actually, I'm sorry. I have two more things. The next biggest thing, and this is more of a screenwriting thing, but I think it's like really fascinating, is the Ocean's Eleven designs characters to prevent us from thinking about logic problems and yeah. to ellipse time in the movie. So the biggest and ob- most obvious example of this is Virgil and Turk Malloy, who were played by Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn's characters. They don't have a story. They just have a bit, and their bit is anytime they go anywhere, they get in a fight, right? And it's hilarious, and it's immature, yeah. and it's great. And they, the Mormons, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're also Mormons, right? We so meet amazing. like we have one scene that's like at all character based about them, and it's like that truck race where one of them's driving a real truck, and the other one's driving like a tiny little miniature that's version of the truck, intro, yeah. and it's great. Yeah. yeah, it's a great intro, and that's all we ever need to know about those guys for like the rest of the trilogy, frankly. You know, so, but functionally, and people aren't going to think about this, but functionally, what they do is they, they're decoys, right? And that's what they do, of course, in the heist. Like they show up, they argue, and they draw all the attention to themselves while the other sneaky thing has to happen, happens while other people aren't watching, right? They do that a bunch of times, but they also do that to the audience. They also are decoys to the audience so that we don't think about how impossible what they're trying to do actually is. So the best mm. example, of course, is the pinch, which I just mentioned to you. Instead of watching the heist, how do they fix the problem? With, Why didn't we go in there with the heist? It's more Virgil and Turk. Like, those guys make us laugh enough. That it's a distraction. It's a distraction. They play 20 questions. Yes. Where, where they go like, yes. right, are you a man? Yes. Are you still alive? Yes. Evil Knievel. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> like, because they both love Evil Knievel, so it's just a joke. Yeah, that's such a great... I'm so glad that you remembered that line, too, because it's such a stupid yeah. joke. But, like... It's a, it's a, yeah, it you, doesn't matter. Nobody ever came out of that theater and said, why didn't we watch The Pinch get heisted? Like, nobody ever no, asked that, no. and it's because how... Because those two guys are so funny. Uh, also, those... <laughs> Only one of those guys has ever been an Academy Award winner, and he's the only Academy Award winner in the movie. Oh, no, he's not. Aaron Brockovich won an Academy Award. Uh, so Je- Julia Roberts has one. I was going to say Casey Affleck is the only Academy Award winning actor in that movie, but it's uh, not, which would have been crazy. It's but not entirely true. No. no, no. Julia Roberts won one also. Soderbergh also won. But he's a director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, I just yeah. like I was like ready to ready. It's to, like it feels weird. It feels weird that he's just like such a supporting role. Well, he's point. like cinema's little brother. You know what I mean? Like he's, yeah. he's like Hollywood's we, little brother. But it's actually perfect role for him because like I don't know. Like I thought he was pretty good in like the the assassination of uh, Jesse James by the coward. Robert Love Ford. that movie. Love it. And he's really good and uh, like pitiful and like terrifying in his own way and that. creepy yeah he's he's got and a real creepy creep vibe. and it's like that's kind of what i cl- clearly he can act this is just like he's playing a member of like the jackass crew and it's yeah. kind of how we enjoyed yeah. him to like the beginning of his career it's, it's, he kind of slid into people's hearts by going like i'm just a dum-dum well he was also the funny one in goodwill hunting and yeah. and basically everybody but the redheaded guy <laughs> in that movie got famous. So right. so yeah. Uh, okay. So other characters that are designed to help us solve logic problems or ellipse time. Basher, Don Cheadle's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he has that terrible Cockney accent, mm-hmm. right? Which is like that in itself is kind of a wink. You know, like hey everybody, look at this stupid accent he's doing. Um, so when he introduces the concept of the pinch, which I can't emphasize enough, is insane and stupid, he introduces it 
by this like long monologue of unintelligible Cockney slang, right? And like nobody understands what he's saying, and they even have a joke about it where somebody goes, do you, uh, do you understand any of this? Yeah, I'll explain later, right? Those are the actual yeah. lines of the movie. So he's like, we're in Bonnie, and then he's like, Bonnie. Right. Bonnie Rubble. Like, Bonnie Rubble, trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, so you're rhyming a thing that I don't know right. in order for me to understand. So I'm not British? Is that the problem? <laughs> like, <laughs> It's like, how does anybody understand that? That isn't really take a Take a fucking hint, Cheadle. For sure. So just so everybody understands, though, it's all a sleight of hand because – he comes in with this unintelligible Cockney accent. They all say, bro, we can't understand you, which is exactly what the audience is saying, which allows him to then slowly explain to us exactly how we need this heist to go and what's going to happen for the movie plot so that we don't need to watch the heist. Like he literally exposits exactly what needs to happen because we want him to because he has that stupid Cockney accent. Right, and it's a fake problem that was set up by the movie to get away with this horrible exposition dump that nobody's bummed about because we want him to do it by the time that he does it for us. Right, it's like genius in a stupid way, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because uh, you never want somebody to have to explain how the plot works, and yet they found this great mechanism <clears throat> to do it. Right? Yeah. Okay. Put it in the mouths of buffoons. Yeah. Well, and all, yeah, and also make us want the exposition so bad that when we get it, we think it's good. You know, uh, so also, and this is like dumb and one of the schlocky things about the movie, but it's fine. Danny Ocean and Rusty Ryan's mind meld thing where like they have constant conversations where they already know what the other one's thinking. So it's, it's so, (laughs) it's, it's, it's it's cute. Yeah. It's cute. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So, and I don't hate it. It's fine. Uh, we accept it, but it gives us, it, it accomplishes more things than just being cute. One thing is it's literally just economical. You never have to have a scene where they argue about whether they need one more guy or whether this heist is doable or any of that stuff because their brains are melded. So we don't need any of those scenes, which would Mm -hmm. be in most heist movies. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is it implies these guys are so smart. They're so much better than the average heist guy. They don't even have to talk about the details of the heist. So we can trust them "Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm, just do their mm -hmm. thing. They know. Grease man. Got it. Know what that means. Yeah, they don't even have. Why should we know? Why should we, the audience, have to know? They know what they're doing. In the sequels, they have that too. They have like, don't we need a looky loo and stuff like that? And we're like, ooh, yeah. Yeah. I'm getting slang. Yeah. Don't we need a. About about how heists work. (laughs) And they're all weird 50s slang. Don't we need an Ethel Mertz with a a banana peel? Like, I guess so, you know? Yeah. We forgot the banana peel. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Versus like a Thomas Crown affair where it's like, I'm going to get in there and steal the painting. Right. <laughs> it's, they, it, Thomas it's Crown not, affair is like meticulously slow about a lot of its, it's stealing it's stuff. It's really charmless and yeah. formal. Uh, yeah. This is like, let's get all the dummies. And by dummies, I mean just like a motley crew that comes in and just has their own strengths. You know, like I love that Casey Affleck. <clears throat> I like that the Mormons... They, they, you're right. They serve as just like, well, they, at any ter- time they can turn into idiots and cause a scene, but they're also very technically proficient. Right. So they like kind of like a twofer, you know? They're competent when they need to be competent. And when they need to just be jokers, they're jokers. It's kind of the equivalent of in a heist movie where you're just moving around parts and playing essentially plot Tetris or information Tetris. Exactly. They're, they're just like a, a a piece that can meld things together. They're like a glue that just like at any time can activate. 
And when you think about them, it's, there's an efficiency of that. It's, <laughs> it's like they're so good and smart at their job that the audience doesn't need to understand their job. That's like the that's the claim of the movie. It's like these guys are so good. Like just watch them work. Like, you don't need to know what they're gonna do. Don't worry. Like they're just really good. And it's like sure, uh, yeah. I guess so. And like that is a very different tactic than most heist movies where we really do mm. need to know to buy in. Uh, mm. Ocean's Eleven's like no, you don't. Uh, these guys are really smart, you know. And. I would just argue that Steven Soderbergh understands how much this is a wink at the audience because he uses these key moments with each act actor to like, just be like, isn't this fun? Don't worry about like whether it all makes sense. Most notably rusty, the doctor, right? <laughs> when he walks in with that really bad mask and glasses and goes "Does somebody need a doctor. And it's not oh, even the wig. Yeah, oh my God. Like, this man's dead or whatever. Right. It, that was <laughs> in the trailers, by the way, uh, yeah. for this movie. It's so dumb, but also it's, it's the filmmaker being like, look, see, isn't this fun? Isn't this great? Mm -hmm. Don't worry. You know, like, don't think about it. Just go along for the ride. You'll have a great time. And he's right. He's right. Yeah. You're not mad about, does somebody call it, does somebody need a doctor? Because mm -hmm. uh, in a normal movie, you'd be like, that is outrageous. But like in this movie, you're like, ah, Brad Pitt, aren't you the best? You know? Well, it's like, yeah, it's the same kind of reason. It's, it's ridiculousness where it's not necessary for the sake of ridiculousness in a moment that isn't necessary. It's it, like, I hate this phrase, but it is what it is kind of thing. Yes, it, like, it is what itself. it is. It's, a, yeah. it's an Ouroboros that swallows its own tail. Uh, yeah. And by that, I mean, it's like, why did they choose to have him eating in the scenes? Well, it's just to make him look more confident. Well, why is he confident? I don't know. Because <laughs> he's, you know, it's whatever. like it, it falls apart. It's just yeah. because he's confident. I, I, uh, I would so argue that, gonna do that I would argue that Ocean's Eleven steps right over the chasm of like, these guys are basically playing themselves and you're basically thinking of them as the actors playing them. Like it steps right. right up to the abyss there and doesn't go in. Whereas Ocean's 12 absolutely does go into that abyss. It even has a bit where right. Julia Roberts plays Julia right, Roberts. Right, exactly. And I think that's because Ocean's 11 is sort of winking at you being like, does somebody need a doctor, right? Did you see all the people we got in this movie? <laughs> exactly. Can you believe it? All of them. We got everybody in this movie. Carl Reiner's in this. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Andy Garcia's in this. Andy Garcia is really good in it uh, in like a very subtle way. So although, just like secret side note, why the hell is, ter is Terry Benedict so opposed to kissing Julia Roberts? Like, what the uh, hell is his problem? I have a big problem with his character in general. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that because they're they're like in the um music. They're get they're buying art, and right. he's like, like, don't kiss me. Somebody's <laughs> always watching. So someone's always watching, and it's just like I get that they pay off with it. Where she, when she overhears him make a decision over, make money decision over her love right like she can then say the line like someone's always watching but he also does the he, it's perhaps the most cringeworthy monologue of all time when i watched it i noticed it more but i've always never liked it okay which is once the heist occurs he has he's on the phone with rusty who's like i'm the man who's robbing you right now and yeah. like they're playing he has this whole monologue where he's like, do one thing for me. Run and hide. Run and hide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so awkward. Yeah, yeah. Because like, he's like, so I, I implore you, I ask you, run and hide. Because I'm like, basically, I'm going to find you and kill you. It's just like, it's posturing for Machizimo, you know. But 
ultimately, if you rewatch that, there's no one, no one is going to support that monologue. That monologue no. sucks. I would argue. And Andy Garcia is very solid actor, but yeah. it's just like, why do we have that? Like, it's just to make him more of a piece of shit. Like, that's just to reinforce that. It's like in the moment where we're robbing someone, we're like, yeah, fuck this guy a little bit. He's like the only person who doesn't smile in this in the movie you know what i mean yeah. like everyone else is having a great time and terry I, benedict the richest man in the las vegas universe is just a cold needlessly callous son of a bitch and i think that that's why he doesn't kiss her is right. it's just we need an excuse to like you're not gonna kiss julia roberts right, exactly you're not gonna kiss her come on to kiss her and you get mad she at him li- yeah. she like loves you what the fuck is your problem <laughs> yeah just what an asshole like you yeah. you kiss julia roberts if she asked you to that's the rules yeah. uh <laughs> so okay that does bring me to my last my last like sort of uh point which is this is a movie that chooses to use jokes instead of tension And that's another way that they kind of mask plot holes. Now, we talked about the pinch a lot, so I'm not going to mention that again. But it's unusual for a movie to use, like, any time that there would normally be a tension beat, they use a joke. And that's like, even when they're executing the heist, that's the same thing. For instance, there's that moment where the grease man gets his his hand stuck in the door because of the cast, right? And right. so, like, so it gets, he could blow up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He could blow up. And so, like, it, you know, timer clicks down, clicks down. Oh, my God, they're going to blow him up. And where does it land? Did you check the batteries? Ah, oh, man, I didn't check the batteries, right? It's and not s- working. Yeah, yeah, it's not working. So instead of plausibility, we go for a joke. And that happens time and time again, right? So it happens with, like, Frank a bunch of times, who's played by Bernie Mac. Uh, when they capture the IT guy's badge by a stripper, uh, who's dressed as a nurse? Like that's like that would normally be a whole sequence in a heist movie. Instead, it just happens. Uh, the entire introduction of Terry Benedict happens in like a montage, uh, which right. happens in sort of a, a. It's not as funny, but it's a little bit more like it sort of just paints over the whole man in broad strokes and kind of and doesn't lay down tension like you never get the scene where he beats a guy to death it just sort of explains no. it to him and then like because it's and then later you get he's like the he's a machine uh right exactly montage where it's like linus after he's observed him is like this is what he does at this time this is what he does like at this time and he's always he always does it uh it's like we don't need to have it's weird that in benedict's case we like hide yeah. Like we understand who he is and what he represents in the heist and then we get to know him halfway through the movie. Like I would argue the he only has a few character beats and they're mostly with Tess. Like for the rest of the yeah. movie he's just sort of like antagonist looking at these guys and does he know? Does he not know? And like that's really it's it. It's mostly to get the love triangle. Yes, which doesn't really work. I would argue that piece is the worst piece yeah. of the movie. Uh, because I think the writing for Tess and Danny is bad. Uh, that part, yeah, I think, doesn't sure. work in this movie. I wanted to just backpedal to the... I just wanted to throw in a, a piece of information that I thought was weird sure. after rewatching it, is you mentioned the time where uh, Yen gets his hands stuck yes. and the bomb using humor instead of building the tension, which is like a normal thing. It's also... I want. I also want to say that the reason that there's tension is because uh, I forget what his fucking name is, but the guy who's like the the nerdy IT guy, yeah, Livingston, who's like 
Dell Livingston, who's like who's who's basically commanding the ship from like from the comm. Yes, saying like, okay, you're go, Danny. Okay, you're go. You know, and stuff like that. He's doing that role, and then he's like, he st- stops and he goes like, all right, hold on, hold on. Yen hasn't moved because he can see inside the the vault. Right, right, and he's like, don't move don't press the button and then someone just so they didn't need a device or they needed a device in order to make the joke work which was unnecessary so it's like once again we have the snake eating its own tail in terms of like why are we watching this because they're artificially creating a red herring in order to artificially create a red herring because like they have to explain it away by creating this thing of oh the EMP the pinch uh, must have knocked out their like must have knocked out their headphone or their headset, so he can't hear me right now. But because if you don't have that, then he just goes, "Don't press yeah, the don't button." Do he goes, it. Oh, okay. Right, which is weird because uh, they it still intercepts uh, all those. They still intercept all those nine one one calls. Like it's a very selective EMP. It's very selective. Yeah. I mean, and of course you don't think about it because we're too busy worried about whether the guy's going to get blown up by these weird crystal bombs they made. You know, like right. it, it, another thing that's sort of masked by motion and and uh, things going too fast for us to think about, and really the scope of the scope of this uh, the scope of this heist is so big that we could never do the movie as though it was a thriller. Like, you right, just because then Benedict Arnold, who at one point has a, a point with uh, uh, with uh, Colonel Carl Reiner, where he's like. I can see in this crystal briefcase with, or the briefcase with the crystals in it. None of this is like dangerous, even though it absolutely is. Right. Why does like, they don't ask what those crystals are. That was weird yeah. to me. It was, they don't test it. Yeah. It's very strange. Yeah. Like he just takes a little wand and we like, just, yeah, let's creep right past it. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> he's doing a weird heart attack thing and he's playing a Russian, you know, like, so no yeah. problem. Um, last little thing. So, Lots and lots of movies do this, but nobody has ever done it the way Ocean's Eleven does it. Uh, this movie uses what I would call monologues, uh, by which I mean either a monologue or a dialogue oh, yeah, that yeah. explains everything you're watching, and then you're just watching most of the heist and prep happen in a montage format while somebody discusses it with somebody else. Normally the worst way to do exposition. In this movie, it's playful and fun, and one of the ways they do make that work is you'll see the beginning of the conversation and then you'll watch all the events they're describing and then they finish the conversation impossibly at the very end of the events in a different place right so like this happens with the terry benedict intro where the beginning of the description happens in a hotel it ends with them watching him walk downstairs at a different casino um, when they recruit Livingston Dell, they start by describing him. Then they're the end of the conversation. They're actually watching him getting tangled up with a dog leash. Um, the explanation of the hostage eighty million dollars happens towards the end of the film. It's the same thing. It's a tr- so it fucks with the chronology. Yeah. using a monologue it's, to branch the details. Yes, it's a thing that's in a lot of thrillers, right? Where like a conversation starts a place and they cut, and the conversation continues in the new scene. But Ocean's Eleven is almost entirely made of that. Like yeah, a good percentage of the movie is that. It's also a tactic often used for flashbacks. Yes. Because uh, someone say like, but that's the thing. 
all the details like knives out i just wrote re- recently watched and it's like there's a section where then kind of rashomon's it and rashomon is a term that i'm using to show like different one narrative different shown from multiple yeah. points of view of different people that it's like yeah in their mind they saw that detail and that detail but in their mind they so we go back to like the source footage and then we just cut out a little later or something like that but it we wouldn't notice what we're supposed to notice unless you had the, you know, Daniel Craig telling us. But then, right after you left, this actually kept happening. Right, right, right. Uh, and so we know to look for it. In this, it's more of like, I'm not even like trying to flash back or do anything where I'm trying to give you information you've already seen. I'm not showing you the thing that you've already seen, and I'm just showing you as the events as they are. But by the end of the monologue, it's happened already. Right, and it's it, that's not like a crime or anything, but it is no, it is impossible, it's and it's a thing that we've sort of accepted in movies. But Ocean's Eleven does it so much more than most movies, and I would argue that's a real uh, feather in the cap for Soderbergh, like how thriftily he's able to do exposition in a way that feels like that was actually fun. Uh, mm-hmm. That's amazing. Like, legit amazing. I mean, all these tactics that he uses are amazing because Ocean's Eleven should be a very bad movie, and it's not. It's a very good movie. Mm. You know? Mm. Uh, Pretty remarkable. And so the last thing I wanted to say about this, which I think I've said eight times in this podcast, uh, is that I think Ocean's Eleven is also proof that other movies that have come in its wake need to learn how to be more efficient. Uh, The two that that sort of like pop in my brain is, uh, is the first one is inception, which spends an hour montaging monologuing through the premise, basically like trying to explain all the concepts of the premise so that they can do a heist. That's the first. And like, it's so long and it's never abbreviated in the same way. Uh, that's the first movie. And the second one is the Irishman, which has, which just sort of refuses to do anything in a montage, even one scene where it has a montage. It's like Joe Pesci explaining to uh, De Niro's character, like what's going to happen on this heist he goes on. And he just says a single sentence and we watch each thing that he describes happen. You're going to go on a plane. He's on a plane. You're going to go talk to a guy. You talk to a guy. He's going to have a truck. You see the truck. It's like, dude, that's the opposite of how you do these fucking montages, man. (laughs) It's also it's a montage inside a flashback, right. which is it's like, dude, kind of hilarious. Let Soderbergh like learn a thing from Soderbergh. I understand he's Martin yeah. Scorsese, and I did like the movie, but like it adds s- elements of style. Sure, but but like again, Ocean's Eleven should be four hours with the amount of content that's in it, and it's a nice zippy two. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas Irishman should be two, and it's a zip. It's a not zippy three and a half for exactly the same reasons. You know, sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm. You know, I'm, I did not like the. Irish I, I actually, so. I did like a lot of it. I didn't like all of it, but I think it's, I think it's a really good sort of counterpoint because you know, Irishman has a big story to tell, that's sort yeah. of too big to really be in a movie, and this is a Ocean's Eleven is a movie that shows us how that can be done playfully and fun, and the Irishman doesn't use any of these tactics. Instead, just like no, we'll just let it all go in real time. And it's like, yeah, don't, though. You know what I mean? Like, we could do this shorter. And, like, that doesn't make it worse, you know? Right, right. Yeah, that's the tactics that it employs. And I bet it's got even more. Um, 
I was trying to think of just how music seems together things that ought not be seen together or it like forces it to work because yeah. you're, you have the music kind of propelling you forward. Uh, and it's not music that it has like, a. it's not score. It's never score because it doesn't score. I think something unique to score is that inside it, it has movement. So it might have like, all right, I'm going to underscore this with like the tension building up. And then, uh, there's an attack or, you know, or like then the killer walks out and starts stabbing someone and then the music changes. This is just like tracks yes. that he puts on to give you the vibe yes. of like, this is the easy going. Okay. This is now they're in control and it's almost always the same note. It's just done with different instruments. Like it just, More just for like comedic effect. Imagine if you oceans 11, like any of the star Wars movies, like uh return of the Jedi is one that really comes to mind. But like, imagine you ocean 11 return of the Jedi. That movie is like 35 minutes max. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Cause like the entire uh, Endor sequence is like explained between Lando and Han while they're getting on board their ships and ends with them celebrating in a forest moon someplace. And that's it. Well, you know, like, uh, I agree. I do think that you accidentally stumbled on the greatest scene in history, <laughs> which would be Wicket the Ewok, like yeah, over yeah. his dead body of his friend, yeah. and the music is yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to make movies better. That's all I want, you know. Right? It's just like instead of his friends dead. Instead of the saddest scene in all of Star Wars, we get instead a kind of whimsical glance at the occasionally painful decisions they make. It's like when your friends die, it's like jazz. (laughs) Uh, It's a, yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying. But but again, Star Wars is essentially in the same category as Ocean's Eleven. And by that, I mean a a, a winter blockbuster movie because that's what oceans 11 was and like can you imagine if they use the same tactics for like rise of skywalkers or like any of these movies right where it's just like and then you know we i don't want to i don't want to spoil rise of skywalkers but like you know we we just walk through any of these movies and ellipse the entire plot of them between a conversation between you know palpatine and and ray or whatever you know i haven't seen it so i can just randomly say stuff but i just like the idea that uh you know, Palpatine is just like, and that's, <laughs> and that's when I decided to create a Star Wars <laughs> first. <laughs> and then you just like, you cut to a weird gotta, planet and you have Elvis Presley yeah. singing it like as an intro to Coruscant. It's just like a Jar Jar stabbing his fucking stupid ass tongue in a pod racer engine and going like, and then a you know camera pans over and Palpatine's just nodding, right? Like he saw it all, and this is the guy. Yeah, that's right. Because if it was Ocean's Eleven, it would be Palpatine. It's a big heist. Palpatine would be the main character. That's totally right. Yeah, he would. He would be the sen. No, he would be the Danny Ocean because he would be setting in motion a Senate heist. Holy shit! That's such a cool movie. It's like Palpatine. (laughs) and Vader, right? And it's like them discussing what they did and what they're gonna do before they murder the fucking Jedi or whatever. You know? And it's like, mm-hmm, you think we need mm-hmm. to kill the Jedi? You think we need to kill the Jedi? Let's kill the Jedi. <laughs> we gotta kill the Jedi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's just always the scene where it's like Wicket once again going like, <laughs> just camera pans over. Palpatine's just sitting there going like, yes, yes. <laughs> it's all, it always ends with Palpatine on another planet finishing a monologue. 
just listening. Yeah, that sounds you know, just like so good. Everything's going. To There's play. a lot of yeah. shots of Palpatine going up escalators, and we drop it off, and Vader's looking at him sort of mournfully. That's what a great yeah. movie we've invented here. Yeah, he like falls down in uh, Return of the Jedi, where he like <laughs> he falls down and he's like fi- lightning is being fired from his hand, right? And then some. He's paid a bunch of guys to have just at the bottom, <laughs> just to have like a parachute, little, of course, or like a little sm- like a landing no, pad. You're, you're, and then they pull him off quickly. He has to do a costume change. You know, it's perfect. Uh, yeah, he like lands on actual balloons, and then we fade. We zoom into the balloons and focus rack to him on his weird clone mm-hmm. island. That's a and then Julia Roberts walks up and goes, "Kiss me, Sheev." <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, "No." Funny, I never got a check. She says no. to him, uh, mm. "Yeah, well, that's a great movie. Uh, clearly, uh, you and I should have written it, and we shouldn't have released it to sure. the public before we sure. before we spec'd it." So, so the verdict is yes, it's unholy spells. <laughs> How did that's what makes Oceans Eleven work? I, you, right? you, that's what you're saying. Wow, you really heisted this podcast, honestly, by finding a way to <laughs> tie that point in. I cannot believe you did that. Yeah, I, I uh, it was all a plan from the beginning, <laughs> my man. <laughs> you just didn't know it yet. That, uh, that wizard joke so, was the air freshener of this podcast. So we just zoomed ooh, out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, wow. Mm, 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 mm. Mm. So uh, here's. <laughs> So here's the thing, because there's a bunch of other plot holes that kind of feed into your theory, which sure. I love, like how did Ocean and his team get the fake money or the strip club flyers into the vault was one thing I noticed. Like if there was just three guys, none of them had like stu- like like bags. Yeah, how so did that work? Were they already in the vault? And why are, why are stripper uh, like pamphlets in the vault. That's what you call them, right? Stripper pamphlets. That's yeah. Uh, flyers. Yeah. yeah. And then the other one is like, why wouldn't Benedict, he just is totally fine with, there was three guys in the safe and SWAT took him away. Knowing what we know about his, like, he's got a major boner for like personal justice and like seeing his thief and looking this thief in the face. Why wouldn't he go like, okay, take me to them. Like, I want to see who the three men who were robbing me are. Right. Yeah, is it is the premise that? But they... instead, he just kind of like let's go to the vault and let's figure it out. He doesn't mention what like he he just doesn't care about what happened to the three guys in the safe. Well, I think that, and I... they just tell him they they've been uh, arrested. Oh right, and then That's the right. SWAT team members come out. He never actually meets the SWAT team members. Like who actually met the SWAT team? Right. Like they just appear. That's true. Randomly. He does. I mean, there's so many plot holes. Yeah. They, he would want to see who did it. That's totally right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, there's a bunch of stuff like that. Here's, I'm going to, uh, I don't even know what, what do we fucking call it in this show? Uh, what's our format? This is your film school uh, feedback. This is my film school feedback. I agree with most of what you're saying, and it it's intact. Your theory is absolutely intact. <laughs> what what uh, took because me out what of it, it though? Does... <laughs> right? No, yeah, nah, yeah. That's a film school <laughs> in joke for you, everybody who went to film school. It took me they out. They really of it. took me out. Uh, of it. No, it's uh, it totally works, and that's why we enjoy movies sometimes. Uh, I do think that it's dangerously close to something that I think is ruining, sp- specifically TV. Um, which is the uh, like the mystery box idea, right? It's dangerously close to the mystery box because the second that you start creating red herrings for the sake of creating new red herrings, like 
if I'm writing in stuff like, uh, well, why don't the batteries work? Or why doesn't his, uh, like, that's a funny joke, and I'm glad we got that joke. That was a fun little bit. But in order for me to even get the tension and therefore for the joke to work, we have to have the whole thing with his Yen's hand in the vault. And if Danny and Linus's headsets don't work because of the pinch, uh, taking out their electronics, I guess, but sometimes it works for other people. Those types of plot holes that are like plot holes don't bother me if they're just like, yeah, I don't think about it because it doesn't really matter. Sure. It doesn't often ruin the story, but stuff like that, it's just like you're just creating uh, straw men for the sake of straw men. Right. And then just for the sake of enjoyment. Now, this is a charming movie, so I give it a bigger pass than I give something like, I don't know, The Watchmen. Right, which which or like, this movie is definitely counting on, by the way. It's like, we yeah, are charming. But like the TV, yeah, but the, when you do stuff where you're just creating mysteries for the sake of getting to the next mystery and then never explaining the previous mystery is like a byproduct of that, uh, it just feels like you're just writing whatever dumb shit comes up to your head and then working backward and essentially like just saying like, but we need to make it so that like at the end they win uh, and we get this feeling that they thought about it all in advance. Even the times you thought they fucked up, they actually, that was a part of the right. plan. Uh, it takes out any of the um, believability of this stuff. And then it's just like, oh, well, okay. Like, what's the difference between Ocean's Eleven and, uh, you know, a piece of trash like the Now You Can't See Me or Now You Can See Me, that series, that's the the, magi- the actual literal magician. You are really, really One. pressing on the magician button today. I love it. Well, that that just happens to be true. But yeah, you know, <laughs> let's, let's think about this. Now, uh, like, that is a absolute piece of crap uh, <laughs> because it's trying to do the same thing as Ocean's Eleven. It's like, what if what if they're actually mages? Um but it doesn't have any of the charm that Ocean's Eleven has because the characters and the actors portraying them are are not very are not good George Clooney. Job. Yeah. So it only gets a pass this movie because I enjoy watching Brad Pitt eat a banana, right, or ice cream or nachos. I enjoy Julia Roberts like throwing water into George Clooney's face. You know, like it, it or you know whatever it may be. It just it makes me feel. Like, I'm like, ooh, these people again. Um, And then Soderbergh does it so masterfully that I don't think about it. But it's basically the proto version of the mystery box a la J.J. Abrams and Damon Lindia. Yes. I I, Uh, I understand. it really bothers me. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think Ocean's Eleven is a movie that it was bad for movies in some ways that it was so good. Because it's, it's using a lot of tools that usually produce bad movies and instead produced a very good movie. That's why the se- the sequels, uh, they also fell flat. Yes. Not because they weren't doing the same thing and it wasn't working and it wasn't the same cast. In fact, they add like Catherine Zeta-Jones to the mix and uh, Al- Albert Finney to the mix. You know, like they, they just keep ramping it up. But because they're itemizing the same thing, it doesn't feel like they we caught a lightning bolt. It feels like, okay, so you're just doing it. Yeah. It feels which I know is like they made a formula and then followed it. 
Yeah, and I understand that that's kind of by nature how sequels work. I'm not arguing against sequels in general, but I am just saying like it is one of those magical things that kind of only works on you once, or at least it does for me. I agree. Now, this doesn't throw anything in the face of what you're arguing, because what you're arguing is you're itemizing how does he accomplish it, which I think is uh, you know the efficiency note and all that stuff I think is very well said. Uh, I just think that if we follow these rules to a T, uh, that doesn't make a good screenwriter. Um, it's as it's on par with a good idea, like a good hook for a movie, which is if he was to pitch this movie and he wasn't anybody, like Soderbergh wasn't anybody, or uh, and he wasn't casting like the cast that he got. It was just like out of film school trying to pitch a movie. The best thing he's got is imagine a heist movie where at the end of the heist movie they've narrated everything and you realize that everything that went bad actually went, was going to plan. Yeah, I mean, right. Which is kind of part and parcel of most heist movies. I it mean, is. That's, uh, it, it is. For a lot, like The Sting and stuff like that, there's a lot of movies that kind of have that vibe. This one goes whole hog in that direction, which is a good you know, idea for a movie. Uh, but it doesn't succeed. It doesn't cause its success. In other words, I would, your theory doesn't cause its success entirely. Oh, so you're so you're you're saying that uh, though I identified things that are true about Ocean's Eleven, that that I have not identified the causal agent. I would say that you're identifying a causal agent, which is the smoke and mirrors of filmmaking. I would argue that the biggest smoke and mirrors is. Uh, the music, the 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 a- actors portraying the characters, mm. and just the overall uh, direction of making a heist movie that is just constant montage. And, and yet, th- right? See, but I feel like what you're saying is that uh, that this is a movie where all that stuff works, even though most of the time it doesn't, right? Because most of the time those things yes, don't work. That's- and like I said, I enjoyed the movie yeah. when I first saw it, and sometimes I watch it too. Uh, ju- and I just put it on, and I don't think about it because it's one of those movies where you just don't think about it. It yeah, it that, um, it, it forces you it to be that casts that spell yeah. on you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I do have uh, I, do, <laughs> I do have one last cracked observation to make. Uh, okay, so there's a moment where uh, they they basically have a van that can be driven by a robot that is a, has a camera head and arms and is being operated by Casey Affleck. And Mm -hmm. that robot is worth much more money than they stole (laughs) in the entire RC car. Yeah. Right. Because which is planted by at the beginning, he does a little one. It's, he just does a big one. It's like, yeah. I mean, so right. They did the, like as the monster truck, and then he has. The they did like a. They did justify it, but it's also like, wait, so this guy can program like, in his free time, basically, a functional mm-hmm. driver that he can operate with a remote, and they're stealing a yeah. hundred million dollars. Like he just made a hundred million dollars. You just sell that. Just idea. sell the robot <laughs> okay. for a hundred million dollars. <laughs> can we just do that? <laughs> you know, like it just seems. Yeah, it's. Seems a little short-sighted. I mean, I still like the heist idea, but yeah, he should be independently wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's like... At the beginning of this movie, therefore have no incentive to be on Yeah, heist. Casey Affleck is the equivalent of Bruce Wayne in this movie, in that Bruce Wayne would be a much more effective crime fighter if he just donated money. 
instead of instead of fighting. And I think Casey Affleck would be a much more effective thief if he just invented things and didn't and didn't thief at all. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's yeah. crazy yeah. how smart yeah. he is. Uh, at the beginning yeah, of the second true. movie, he's also the Afflecks truly are a scourge <laughs> on the universe. <laughs> in in the beginning of the second movie. Uh, he's about to get married to a woman who super ends up not mattering at all in this trilogy, but it's a little bit like, yeah, that poor woman. Yeah, it's a little bit like, so like this guy is like a mega star talent wise. Like this guy's a mega talent as a human being. And I don't mean Casey Affleck. I mean, the character that he's playing is a mega talent yeah, yeah, yeah. and like nobody ever takes him aside. Like his brother doesn't care about him enough to be like, yo dude, why are you a thief? Straight up. Like you can get women when you need to. You like you can invent robots that are straight up sorcery. Like just sell a robot and retire. You know what are you doing? But nobody says that to him. No one says it to him. Ah, oh, what a loss. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when you don't believe what you say. That's like my favorite thing. What do you mean? <laughs> I believe we do, we live in the Ocean's Eleven world. Don't uh, you know this? Uh, uh, I love that. Well, that. I like this. Me too. This is a good argument. I'm going to bring this to other movies now. I'm going to think about how unholy spells and incantations involving ghouls are really, truly how movies work. <laughs> Thank you for taking the correct lesson from this <laughs> from this mm. hour podcast. Mm. Yeah. That was well done, sir. Thank you. Well I appreciate done. it. Round of applause. <laughs> Nope, we don't have. We didn't get an applause. We, did. <laughs> we didn't get an applause machine. We didn't get an, a, a group of fans. No, uh, on the didn't even add so it in I post. Apologize. I guess so. Yeah. yeah, what are you gonna do? I really fucked up that heist. <laughs> I'm also gonna start calling just like normal things heists. Oh, yeah. You know, like yeah, I'm gonna go do a lunch heist, which just means it's gonna make a sandwich. <laughs> but I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna do it sneakily. You know. Yeah, yeah, and like and complicated. I, but you you didn't think I put the fucking mustard on first but i did um that kind of sure thing. yeah so you're putting a mustard yeah. on nothing first is that is that this lo- that is a lunch heist right there wouldn't you like to know <laughs> <laughs> watch the movie and you'll get oh, it all shit you'll get all the wow what a that's some hype right there that's a mystery box right there baby <laughs> what will abe be putting mustard on nothing question mark you know voters and listeners weigh in Weigh in on, on what yeah. he's putting on mustard, you know? I'm wily. <laughs> uh, Anything else you want to say? Anything else we doing here? Or are we done? Uh, I think that's it for this installment of Director Peace. But I... So next episode is me. I Yeah. So, the, so we've done two episodes yeah. so far. And I won mine. And you won yours via me. <laughs> so... So uh, next next round will be me uh, pitching something. Are you keeping else. like a mustard we'll scoreboard? Decide. You just having a scoreboard made <laughs> yeah, of mustard really in your clown apartment. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy that image. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get out of here. All right. Good job. Good job. Man. <laughs>